The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. This one on Sunday. It's also a podcast. Special hello if you've downloaded that. Oh, boy, I had a difficult Friday. Difficult because uh, an interview that's going to be happening tomorrow evening is about human parasites. I just thought of the idea. Let's find someone who knows about parasites and find what things are living inside us or other people. Uh, Careful what you wish for, I think, is the salutary lesson. Uh, There are, of course, uh, videos of these monsters. And just like I would do for any other subject matter, um, you want some complimentary links? What the hell is this guy talking about? If you're listening to it, you can go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and have a look. It's what I try and do um, just to be as inclusive and as formative as possible because it's relatively easy to do. I cannot unwatch some of those things. I don't recommend you even have a go at it, um, but they are there. If you are less squeamish than I, maybe you're a surgeon or something and uh, you can cope with these things, but oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Mercy Lord. His name's Graham LeGrow. And don't miss it, actually. On radio, it'll be fine. Uh, it'll, although it still is a relatively difficult listen. That's going to be tomorrow night. When? When, Graham? Oh, I've forgotten. Uh, it will be tomorrow after Skeptical Thoughts, I think. Um, here we go. Yeah, around about the 9.30 mark tomorrow. Oh, let's get ripping on this program, though, huh? Uh, Science Hour this hour. Kind of a part two with Sean Handy coming up. How science fiction has failed and succeeded in its predictions. Oh, remember UFO, the program, oh, it was a Barry Anderson sort of thing. That was the sound of the UFO. You know when that was set? They tried to go for a realistically futuristic date. Nineteen eighty-one. <laughs> oh, oh, missed on that one. You know the Moon Babes on Moon Babe Alpha. Okay, that's it. John Hendy after that uh, after the break, and also astronomy this hour as well, as usual with Grant Christie and uh, an extra large array of uh, videos and images associated with what Grant's going to be talking about on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. I entreat you to go have a look. It will do nothing other than improve your experience of this program. Good evening, everybody. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Effectively a part two science report this week from Sean Hendy. Last week's, go and have a listen to it actually because we were talking about, well, basically trying to tick the boxes of what science fiction predicted that we do have. Yep. 
today yeah and those things that science fiction predicted that we don't yeah that's right teleportation and flying cars yeah yeah not not here just yet yeah <laughs> flying cars i reckon coming but teleportation yeah no no, no. <laughs> there's some interesting philosophical questions about that too oh are they philosophical i'll use that word they, i think they are yeah i think it's actually kind of interesting that what do you mean by teleportation well yeah. it's 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 about moving you from one place to another without you actually having to move, yeah. right? You know, and um, and actually we can we can do this with atoms. This is the weird thing, right? We can actually do the with atoms. Now we're not we're not moving the atoms um, as such, but we're putting other atoms in exactly the same state right. as the atoms that that we have that we've moved. And and so people can do this technology. So you can take an atom and you can and you can put it into the same state as an atom a long distance away. And so. That's action at a distance. Action at a distance. Um, but these things become the, entangled. That's the, without the spooky language that a lot of people use, though. You didn't use the spooky language. Yeah, so so it's spooky. So these things get entangled. And, okay. and in theory, you can you can teleport the quantum state of one one atom um, and, and impose that on another. So there's this kind of this thing that maybe you could do this with with a human being. Um, what would that mean to have a copy of yourself in an identical quantum state? Would then, you be the same person? And then presumably you're going you're to diverge, right? You know, quantum systems don't stay entangled forever. Mm. Um, and, you know, would you want to have the old version who's, you know, wherever? Mm. Um, you know, you, let's, instead of taking your, your Uber home, you, you, <laughs> you know, you deconstruct the version <laughs> of you that's, that's out at the bar and reconstruct a version of you that's, that's yeah. in bed tucked up. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I think... I. I I don't think we really know some of the answers to that, no. um, to those questions. That's that, but but you know, I think the te the technology is kind of possible in principle, mm. but actually the practical limitations are we're only going to be ever able to do this with a f f you know small collection of atoms, so yeah. it's not going to happen to a person or a living thing. Yeah, um, I suppose one of the most famous depictions in science fiction of that is the fly. Because the fly got in the teleporter yeah, thing. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and then got that got transposed. Yeah. Yes, that is lovely and horrific. <laughs> Help me! Okay, let's talk robots. Last week we talked uh, about Arthur C. Clarke's yep. powers of prediction. Um, he is pretty good. He's got some good cherries he's, to pick, as we stated. Yeah. Uh, and this 2001, God, when was it made? 68? Yeah, it, was around, it wasn't. Yeah, before, yeah. before I was born. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so 68, 69. Yeah, 50, um, 50 years on. Yeah, still a. Still a and really the book, of course, watch. before that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, that was, and the author being, being Arthur C. Clarke. And, and one of the key elements in, in the book was, was how mm. the, the computer that. The, it goes crazy. I'm um, sorry, Dave. Yeah, that's right. But remains very chillingly calm um, as it as it um, as it breaks down. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. And somewhat unfuturistic yeah. to experience today. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, Which you, means he's really nailed it, hasn't he? <laughs> Voice recognition. Yeah. yeah, right. So we're, so we're talking to our devices now. Yeah. Um, that's something that's come leaps and bounds in the last couple of years, getting better and better. Um, you know, now has the ability, um, you know, we, the little earbuds that you might put in and have something translated on the fly, the, the Babelfish. Um, the, the Douglas Adams mm-hmm. was talking about that. Right. You know, we're, we're not far from that. Um, and so speech recognition, gosh, you know, we are talking to our devices um, and they're not doing a bad job of understanding us. They're struggling a little bit with the Kiwi accent um, when we speak English, um, but that's that's actually just a matter of data. Mm. Um, the more we speak to our devices, the, the better the, they the learn. The more Amazon and Google will and Apple will learn about the, the New Zealand accent. And there's even people in New Zealand working on Te Reo Māori as well. Right. Um, and so there's there's some it's still early stages, but it's but it is actually possible to talk to um, a talk in Te Reo um, to to a machine now and have that uh, converted into uh, into into code and text. I don't know. Do we not appreciate the amount of computing grunt that must go into speech? recognition because it's one of those really um fuzzy logic things yeah it's isn't quite it? a it's quite a grunty um process i mean sometimes you can get away with it you know it, it's using it tries to the software tries to use a lot of tricks um so actually there's there's software that you can that, that runs now that'll actually be listening to probably us on on radio mm-hmm. trying to tell whether we're, we're speaking in Tadeo or english uh-huh. um and because um uh new zealand on air will actually fund uh, radio stations more if they're using more today, so they they monitor it and there's and and it actually it's picking up on particular sounds um, that we make. Uh, so so sounds that are present in English and absent and in Tadao really? and vice versa. Yeah. So it's not it's not understanding us, but it's just picking up differences in the in the sounds that are made in the different languages. Um, so that's running now, and that you know that that that's using some grunts, but mm. we've got. Um, things like GPUs. So these are the graphics processing units um, that have really that that you know really changed the game in terms of cloud computing. So these were built for gamers, right? You know, yeah. 10, 15 years ago, we would have said these. You know, why are we making these things? What a waste of resources, right? It's putting all this effort into into gaming, um, but actually, those are the things that are driving cloud com- uh, cloud computers these days. Yeah. Um, and and well, gaming, I understand. Um saw something this week has driven a lot of technology yeah yeah i'd i'd, I'd like to think it was us scientists <laughs> you know was driven demand away. for but, technology but it's that, it's that big demand it's the yeah. fact that there's many people wanting to use these technologies and um and i'm very engaged by these technologies and so that has driven a lot of a lot of advances in this area mm. so speech recognition coming along and and many of us using it now uh image processing actually just in the last couple of years as well you know a lot of sci-fi based on um on monitoring people sort of the you know the george orwell type um society orwellian societies where you have government able to monitor where you're going you know a number of tv series based around that Mm -hmm. that's that again leaps and bounds just in the last couple of years and so ability to recognise faces uh, and people and pick them out of crowds, but also other objects in the environment. Um, and that's leading to um, autonomous vehicles, for oh, example. Right. Uh, and their ability to navigate. They use a lot of other sensors as well. Um, and, and so, you know, 
we, we are probably not far off from having robots navigating themselves around our house um, using image recognition and other types of sensors. Right. Um, so, so all, and that, that comes down to processing power and our ability to do things over Wi-Fi, right? So, you know, when you're talking to your uh, Amazon Alexa at home or your, your Google Home, uh, a lot of the processing has been done somewhere else, right? It's, it's been, that's been sent off over uh, your Wi-Fi network mm-hmm. across your ultra-fast broadband and being processed somewhere else and then the results are sent back. So it's not all being done in, in place at home. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's something I'm not sure if, if uh, everybody got right uh, in sci-fi. The, you know, cloud computing yeah. um, is almost back to the kind of the original idea of computers that we just have these big yeah. one mainframes, and we kind of laughed at those in the 90s and the 2000s well, and we, when we, we all put... We didn't laugh at it when it was said. Yep. Then we did laugh yep. at it when everyone had a PC. Yep. And now we're not laughing at <laughs> it right. again and because it's come true. Computing's just everywhere now, yeah. right? So, um, But the big grunt is, you know, four yeah. or five of them around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These these big servers now, big yeah. server farms that are doing a lot of the computation yeah. for it was, us. It was the guy from IBM or something, wasn't it? That yeah. Uh, yep. when, when asked how many computers might, do you think there would be in the world? We might sell five or six. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we, we, we're sort of heading back to that. We're, we're, um, we're, the processing is done, you know, away mm. from us. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's thanks to improvements in communications technologies. Right. I don't know how technologically important they are, but... Um, robots that are anthropomorphized um, I think outside of sex bots probably not (laughs) we don't care anymore the idea of robots in um, a lot of sci-fi outside of Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick who got it right um, had two arms and legs and a face yeah 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 danger Will Robinson danger no Will Robinson danger and and there's actually actually there's that great video of um, on YouTube of robots falling over um, so it, so it's uh, um, you know DARPA, um, so yeah. that's the that's the U.S. military's um, kind of you know they kind of invest in leading edge tech, and there's a great video of all, of of their robot competition with where they've tried to begin you know they've tried to um, have a have a competition that will spur the development of bipedal robots robots mm-hmm. that walk. Um, and, and you can watch this great compilation of these robots falling over um, as they as they attempt. You know, there's a great one where the where the robot tries to turn on turn on the light switch and misses, <laughs> loses balance, and just sort of slowly tipples over. Well, um, that's actually better than me on some yeah, days. Absolutely, yeah. At three in the morning. Yeah, yeah. We we need to teleport you home at times, <laughs> probably. But um, uh, th- no, those are those those potentially have have uses. You know, where we need to go into human built environments, so an environment where you know they're built for humans, ah. but it may be too dangerous. You know, so you can imagine them being used in firefighting and search and rescue situations where they, you know, they kind of need to fit into human sized spaces and use stairs, right, um, right. and and you know climb a ladder maybe. Um, and so robots like that could be useful in those situations. And that you know they're coming along. Mm. Um, we'll we'll see things like that in the next few years, I think. As a thought experiment, I've often wondered if you got someone. Took, took away all the human beings um, and showed uh, from a house. Yeah, right. A regular house. Took away all the human beings, all reference to anything of the human body whatsoever. Um, and you got a Martian and put them in the house. Would they be able to work out what a human being looked like? What would they be able to... Yeah, that's right. Given yeah. a chair. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, how does, yeah. why yeah. would this be... Yeah, you know, here's yeah. A, like kind of forensic science for yeah. what happens to all the humans. Forensic... Yeah. Uh, interstellar anthropology. Yeah, right. Yeah. Gosh, I don't, I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> um, 
and and yeah, depending on whose house, right? <laughs> they, have, they got hold of a guitar. Very, Look at that. Yeah. Jeez, what on earth is that for? <laughs> yeah. Now that would, but yeah, you could learn a lot about a guitar, right? About about yeah. what, about our ears, uh, what we listen to, you know, the f- range of frequencies that yeah. we're sensitive to. Yeah, maybe who they'll, knows? They'll have to have fiddly bits at one end. Yep. So yep, you know, yep. they'll maybe get fingers from yep. that. Who knows? Yeah. So interesting stuff. Um, and then, of course, AI. So all all this is sort of starting to um, to come together. And and you know, when we talk to things, we want them to do something sensible in response. Um, and that requires that that's where AI is is coming into things. Mm. Um, and again, big advances now um, in uh, in what artificial intelligence can do. You know, a lot of it, a lot of the stuff that makes the news is, is in games. You know, we we, we had drafts um, and then chess. Um, and now Go, uh, right? Which goes goes, you know, was always thought to be a, a game that computers would struggle at, because just the you know you can't beat it by brute force, right? That's the, that's it's there's too many possible combinations in the game of Glow, Go that that brute force computation doesn't give you much of an advantage. But actually now they've got algorithms that are able to learn wow. and, and recognise patterns, um, and I think the big advance in the last year. Um, is actually computers playing each other. Um, so you can actually switch on a, uh, a, a piece of code these days, it'll play itself, and it will learn that way. And within a day or two, those computers will beat, those, that, those, that software will beat the, the, the um, bits of code that have been doing it by brute force. Oh. Um, and so that's kind of really spooky. You know, you switch these things on, no need for tuning by by humans. Um, these computers will, will will teach themselves. This should so, be the tech games where IBM takes on. Yeah, Intel well, they do. They something. do have these competitions. Yeah, and so and so. Um, uh, and I think it's is it, is it AlphaGo. I, I might have that one wrong. AlphaGo is the current champion at Go. And really, it's, and it's self-teaching. Yeah, wow. it's the one that that will just train itself, and you can start start it from scratch, mm. um, and in a day it's it's bootstrapped itself yep. uh, to where it's playing. And so, okay, so now I don't personally want to play Go with <laughs> with my uh, Silicon Overlord, um, uh, but of course these types of these types of tasks, you know, these are things that that once you start putting enough of these different types of bits of software together, mm. potentially start to become useful. Um, and so I think, you know, we're not there yet. We're not interacting um, every day with these, um, with these self-learning algorithms, but they're coming. Mm. Um, and so I think in the next few years we'll start to see that. And also uh, I suppose a purist might think it's a waste of grunt, but the, uh, towards anthropomorphizing things, IBM have, do have those avatars that yeah. uh, all the effort is going into making them look and react uh, in a most human way as possible, yeah. Yeah. rather than just doing some calculating s- calculations and giving you a handy yeah. result. No, that's right. No, yeah. They're pouring tons of grunt into making this person appealing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people like that. Yeah, yeah, and you want to, I mean, and, and, you know, we all like to interact with things that have a that have a good interface, right? Yeah. That have a that that understand us and can work well with us. We don't like to use clunky yeah. programs or clunky bits of software that are difficult to use. And so this is about fitting and making software more usable for us, I guess. Well, but also slightly creepy too, right? We you know, as we try to mimic 
human beings yeah. more and more, that starts that gets an, takes you to that uncanny valley. Yeah, um, we could you're not end quite up having, sure. having to break up with some software because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's not you, it's me. Yeah, I, yeah. and of course, the, you know, some of these technologies are being used on social media. Yeah, um, and so you. You know, there's a there's a um, there's a website you can go to called the Botometer. Um, if you're a Twitter user, um, go to the Botometer, um, and you can put a Twitter handle on, and it will give you a it'll take a, a, a guess as to whether that the, the Twitter handle is a bot, is being used run by a bot or by a human being. Right, um, that's hand. And sometimes <laughs> I had the experience. Someone I was sure was a bot. <laughs> I put it in and said, "No, it's a human being." Oh, the other day, so no. so you know, it's um, uh, yeah, that's the reverse Turing test where you think the person you're interacting with is actually AI. Yeah, <laughs> they must have been very enthusiastic. Yeah, they and, were, and regular poster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine imitating a bot as yeah, a person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, just a couple of things uh, regarding the improvement in technology, perhaps unforeseen effects. Um, a massive reduction in the amount of UFO sightings. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they have almost disappeared. Now, now that we've got cameras everywhere, yeah. gosh, haven't they? Haven't they disappeared? Well, I did. I, I, th- I did see something on the Herald. Oh, really? <laughs> and how many um, murders would have gone unsolved without? Yeah where you can follow your cell phone node we knew you were driving there that's right or, or why did you turn that your cell phone off for those yes. uh, those crucial two hours when you're telling us you were a certain place yeah, yeah. So, and i suppose cctv this has got the orwellian side of the problem as well but um i'm, yeah. just, I'm just talking about unsolved murders there, yeah. are, there are far fewer of them I, i'm suspecting no that's right yeah yeah i mean i think i well i don't know if we're cutting down on yeah on on that in, in, in total you know um but certainly, uh, those those technologies are, are you know they can they can provide yeah. police. I'm just uh, going anecdotally on how I watch the the crime channel. Yeah, right. A lot. Yeah. How yeah. many of them are solved yeah. by? Oh, we've got a ping from a cell phone here, or yeah. CCTV, we know, something. We kn- drove past here. Yeah. Then yeah. his car was talking to his phone. Blah blah. Wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Um, and. But there are privacy concerns, right, as, as well. Um, that, you know, it's slightly unnerving having all these devices listening to you um, in your house. Um, you know, they're, they're presumably sitting there not talking to Amazon or Google um, uh, until you ask them to. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, we've got to be cautious about, uh, uh, about these things. And, of course, if you do get hacked, if, if you know, someone, someone got through your Wi-Fi network and into these devices, there's the potential that someone could eavesdrop. Um, so that's always going to be a concern yeah um so so yeah downsides as well as the utility of these things Mm. and unlike uh the one side of the orwellian uh, dystopia um is very different it's not the government so much Uh, what not in the society that we live in it's private corporations and we're talking google apple facebook twitter they're collecting an awful lot of information that's about it yeah you know the other that side of the all private yep. organisations. Yep, and multinationals too. Yeah, right. So, so you know, they're being, they might be um, constrained on what they can do in one country, but are potentially doing things in other countries that that uh, we wouldn't like. Um, and that's that's a, that's a concern for actually a number of people in New Zealand is when our data goes offshore. Mm. Um, you know, I think one person pointed out to me that of course, you know, places like Estonia, um, which are, which are you know, t- tech-rich countries. 
doing a lot of this technological development very close to Russia. <laughs> what happens if, if the Russians roll over the border? You may feel comfortable with the Estonians ha- having your data. Um, how comfortable would you be with, with um, uh, the Russian state having your data, for example? So that's kind of a, quite a concern for some people. Okay. Sean, uh, fascinating talking about modern technology and uh, where science fiction got it right and got it wrong. Anything else you want to add? No, I think that's pretty good for this week. Yeah, good one. Sean Handy, physicist at Auckland University. Thank you very much. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Astronomy Today with Dr Grant Christie. Yes, astronomy time with Grant Christie. Hello. Hi, Graham. Uh, lots of visual treats this week, so go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and we've got links to uh, a lot of things to have a look at that um, better explain and kind of uh, looking pretty cool. And, of course, number one in the news at the moment, um, we're getting closer. When I say we, they are getting closer and closer to this Ryugu thing. And we've got awesome um, high-definition photographs now quite close to this really primitive asteroid yes indeed uh yeah in fact you know one of the things that i've just discovered uh in the last few days is uh is that this uh, that the japanese space agency jaxa for the hayabusa 2 mission have got a really good twitter feed now mm-hmm. get, getting going i mean they it was hard getting the most up-to-date pictures but now you you get everything so if you sort of search twitter and find uh, look up uh, hayabusa 2 you'll find their Twitter feed, and if you're keen, uh, follow that, because you'll cool. get the pictures basically as soon as they're available. It's fantastic. So, uh, What do we know from having a look at it this close up, though? Well, at the moment, they're just sort of uh, testing out their gear. Um, they brought it in within a, f- you know, within a few kilometres. It's, its parking position around the asteroid is about 20 kilometres away. Oh. And then they, once they then they decide, okay, for the next three or four days, we're going to bring it into a closer look and then do this, that, and the other thing. Then they move back again. So they're just sort of constantly d- doing that. And they're, so they're concentrating their efforts. When they bring it in close, I guess they have a whole lot of uh, extra people involved. Um, so they can't sustain that permanently. So uh, they they uh, do it in these sort of episodes. And in fact, the last one, when they were bringing it in close, uh, relatively close, a few kilometres away, um, to get a close-up view, uh, they mentioned that, um, you know, they're a bit concerned because of a typhoon. And I was... What? And not only me, other people were saying, typhoon, what the hell's that got to do with it? Well, anyway, there's a great big typhoon going to run over the top of the JAXA thing in Japan. So they were oh. concerned they'd lose communication with the thing while they're at this critical phase and not be able to control it. Right. If they lost some of their antenna that are talking to the thing. So that was the typhoon uh, drama. Why don't they just get right up close and land on the bloody thing? Well, they're going to drop... Uh, they, they are, the, the, the main spacecraft isn't going to land on the, the asteroid, but what they're doing is surveying it, working out its gravity, working out so they can control it. Then they've got three little landers that they can bring down, um, and uh, one, at least one of them's going to land on the surface. Other two are going to momentarily be there, grab some samples and leave. Not good. We'll talk about that more probably when it starts to happen. Mm. But uh, And the idea of what they're trying to do is grab a piece of this asteroid, which is a very primitive asteroid, probably sort of one of the earliest ones formed when the sun formed, 
um, possibly even predated the sun. I mean, some of it was possible. You know. mm. But anyway, they want this really primitive material and bring it back to Earth so they can study a chunk of it in detail. Um, pristine material that's never been sort of through this atmosphere or anything else like that. So yeah. that's that's ultimately their mission. But uh, at the moment, they're just sort of getting ready. They're surveying it, working out its shape. They're surveying. They'll survey the entire surface to work out where is the safest place because it's covered with boulders. You can see these mm. all over the surface of it, just even from the pictures they've put out so far. So they've got to know where those are because if you Brian bring your little lander down, it lands on a rock and falls over or something, then you know mm. that's not good. So, no. so they they have to do that very precisely. And also the gravity of this object is only a kilometre across. It's so weak that uh, you know the it's sensitive to very little changes. I mean, you mm. have to do everything very, very slowly and carefully um, okay. uh, because the escape velocity is so tiny that if you bounced off the surface, the thing would, your land You're would off. go off again and you probably wouldn't get, see it again. Right. So but it's a, a very delicate operation. So I'm it's, surprised it's got any discernible gravity at all. Well, you know, a kilometre across, yeah. I mean, that's the size of a small hill around, yeah. you know, like Auckland, One Tree Hill or something like that. You know, yeah. those sort of things, you know, you can, but when of, I'm walking you can past, imagine. when I'm walking past Mount Eden, I don't actually feel as though I'm pulled towards it. Well, no, you don't. You don't. But uh, it is a very weak effect. There's right. no question. But uh, when you're in space and there's no atmosphere right. and no nothing, yeah, and then you can certainly... It, <laughs> it's there. Gravity's there. Right. Okay. Thanks, Newton. Yes. Um, and Einstein. Now, uh, some more uh, goodies to have a look at. Uh, there's a 3D graphic showing why we see meteor showers. We're, we're running into the path of dust trails. Sort That's of right. I mean, uh, meteor showers, and people have heard about the Geminids and the um, Perseids and all these other meteor showers. There's a whole lot of them. Mm. Um, and a lot of them aren't uh, you know, fully mapped. Uh, but, you know, they occur at a certain time of the year. Um, and... Uh, you know, people get to know that the Geminids, what is it, in December or something, mm. I think it is, or November or December, um, and uh, they appear to come from the same point in the sky. And what this graphic shows is why that, why that is so. Basically, the, the stuff we're seeing in a meteor shower is little bits of dust that have come off a comet. So comets, when they're going around the sun, uh, as they come in close to the sun on their in their path, they, they, some of their their orbits take them a long way out from the sun, like Halley, mm. um, and then they come in close to it. And when they get close to the sun, the sun heats up the icy material that the comet's made of, and a lot of it just sort of evaporates off into space, taking dust with it. So the, basically, the comet leaves this dusty trail around its orbit. And if the Earth happens to pass through that trail, then we see a sudden increase in the number of meteors in the sky, all seeming to come from the same point, which is dependent on the way the Earth's moving. So basically the, um, what the, uh, this graphic shows, it's done by a uh, very uh, sort of well-known leader in the field of studying meteors in the solar system and cometary debris, um, but it, it, it's a nice graphic. It shows you uh, a range of not all the meteor showers, but some of the major ones. And, uh, and uh, you can dial up the calendar so you can see, you know, what particular year you want. And you'll see the Earth, which is, I think, the blue mm -hmm. orbit. Uh, you can see the Earth going around that. And you can see when it goes through the path, that the path of that comet, that orbit of that comet, 
the earth ploughs through that at a certain time and that corresponds to the time of the shower. And the, and the material's not uniformly distributed around the orbit of the comet either. It sort of tends to be clumped into lumps and stuff. And oh, so, so you know if there's going to be a good bit. Yeah, so that's right. That, so the Leonid shower, for example, the Leonids in, uh, is a famous uh, shower, and every 33 years the Earth goes through a thick part of the debris that ah. was left by that comet, just, just by chance. And when you get that, you can get a meteor storm where you can get thousands of meteors per hour. Not just, if, you know, mm. if you've ever gone out there and looked for these, you know, you're sort of lucky if you see 10 an hour or something like that. Um, but uh, when you get a meteor storm, that's sort of one of the true great uh, natural phenomena you can yeah. ever witness. I've, I've you've not, ever seen one? I, I haven't, but I do know an astronomer that did. I've never seen saw one. Saw one in 1966. Oh. Uh, the Leonids uh, had a... They, he wasn't a meteor astronomer. He was working on a big telescope on top of a, a mountain, and he... Uh, uh, the technician just came up and said to him, hey, there's something weird going on in the sky. And so they went and strolled outside and the sky was just full. At that stage, they were getting like 20,000 meteors wow. per hour. And sort of like, it was like 50 a second or something. So they just lay down on the top of this mountaintop, forget the big telescope, stuff that. Yeah. We're going to just watch this shower. Cause he, and he reckoned it was the most amazing natural phenomenon he'd ever seen. Far out. So, uh, yeah, so... Um, and you have to be at the right place on Earth too, so the whole Earth doesn't see it. These that that dense stuff only lasts for an hour or two, and if you don't happen to be nighttime at uh, your place, you won't be seeing. It. Right. So it's one of these pure chance things. But so the, yeah. So anyway, this uh, and it's a nice graphic. You can roll around, see the solar system in 3D, see the orbits of different cometary uh, yeah. debris trails, and uh, you know just understand why you have cometary. Uh, debris causing meteor showers. Um, it's interesting to see something happen on the moon because uh, not much does. Or, but now we're looking, we can see little meteorites hit them. And this is kind of neat, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Point. This has actually got a kind of an interesting history, this, because people have been looking through telescopes at the moon for a long time, yeah. from Galileo onwards, you see. And uh, as telescopes got better, people sort of mapped the moon and drew pictures of it, and then they took photographs of it once they had photography. Um, and people used to think they were seeing things on the moon, like eruptions. They didn't know whether there were volcanoes there or anything. They sort of, For a long time, they were thinking the craters were volcanic. Um, they didn't realise they were all impact craters. Mm. Uh, that's a relatively recent understanding. Um, so they were watching the moon, trying to understand all the stuff, and they thought they'd be seeing things. And they, the, the term for that was transient lunar phenomena, and it became catchphrase for sort of like seeing a flying saucer, basically. Oh. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, but it, it, it became respectable again in the Apollo years. So where we for, for, had astronauts up orbiting the moon uh, for the first time, close up. And so if somebody from Earth through their telescope during an Apollo mission saw something and they had an astronaut orbiting the moon, they could get them to photograph that close right. up. Uh, unprecedented, never happened before. So, so TLPs, transit phenomena, became a sort of more respectable science after that. And nowadays, um, the sort of things that amateurs have been doing is just sort of using two video cameras, two different people in different parts of a country, videoing the moon, when the moon's in its sort of, uh, is in a thin crescent phase, so most of it's in... Is not is not bright. Right. When it's bright, you can't see this. But what you do is you record video at sort of five fifty frames a second or something like that, pictures of the moon, and then you, if you see two flashes simultaneously from two completely separate places, hundreds of kilometres apart, then you know that it's something that's hit the moon, not your camera. Ah. 
So now, now so, that was pioneered by amateurs, and they found a number of these meteoroids. Uh, these are sort of basically objects that might be the size, typically, of a walnut. You know, these aren't big objects, things that would burn up in our atmosphere, but on the moon there's no atmosphere, so they just go bang into it, and that... A, a walnut, some, something the size of a walnut, hitting the moon at 10 kilometres per second imparts a lot of energy, so you do get a flash of yep. light, um, which cameras see. So now the professionals are doing it to count up what is the, you know, what is the density of material out there. I mean, the, the moon's just providing a, a wonderful little sort of a, a sampling service, you know, for us, and all you've got to do is look at it and take pictures. And uh, so what this, this images show is... Uh, uh, a video taken by two professional telescopes showing uh, two different impacts on the moon that uh, they recorded. Um, and of course, if you had a, if it went through a, a bunch of stuff, you could see a whole lot of things hitting the moon. We haven't seen that yet, but you know, inevitably that'll happen sooner or later if you keep the moon under observation. During what we were talking about previously, the meteor shower, surely the moon is part of this as well. It would get hit a lot more. Yes. Well, the uh, well, uh, probability uh, probability is about the same. In fact, right. there's less chance hitting the moon than the Earth because the Earth's bigger. But of course, those meteors actually hit the moon's surface. The meteors, uh, because they're, they're, there's no atmosphere, so nothing to stop it. So the moon surface is getting peppered. So if you're standing on the moon, there's no atmosphere up there to stop these little guys hitting yeah. you. The chance of being hit while you're on the moon for a short time, it's not a problem. But if you are living on the moon for a long period of time, then the chance goes up that you're going to hit bit, hit by a little... I mean, something the size of a walnut would kill you, no problem. It would. What sort of hole would it make? It would make a big hole. Probably make a would hole it, the size of a walnut going exactly in the size of a walnut, the size of a basketball coming out the other side. Right. So, and these things are travelling fast. These objects are travelling like <laughs> ten times faster than a high-velocity bullet. Right. At least ten times. Right. Could be twenty, thirty times. Right. So you know, the, these they would hit, it and would. your spacesuit ain't going to help. But I wonder <clears> if it was just t like a tiny little <laughs> flick of paint, and it went straight through you. That that could do damage too. Well, it? yeah, that would give you a bad hair day. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it doesn't have to be very big. So, you know, the, the ones that they're seeing from Earth are things that are sort of sort of in, mm. you know, the walnut size or maybe even a little smaller, but these are still relatively big objects. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other small bits of dust hitting the moon as well, and uh, you, you probably your spacesuit would protect you against sort of tiny little things, microns across, but right. once they get up to millimetres, they, you might not be so lucky. Have you dealt into the lunar cities on the moon conspiracy? No. Okay. <laughs> we'll move on. It's hilarious. But anyway, uh, you know, at the, on the face of it, it looks convincing. Oh, bloody hell, look at that. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, you get these on the pictures of Mars that have yeah. been released as well. These people that sort of go over them and then stretch the images and sort of try to yeah. enhance Parnia them. on the reef, they found that. Oh, yeah. They? No, it's, uh, okay. Uh, now, talking of Mars, there are some beautiful pictures as well. We haven't finished with uh, some of these links and they're good things to talk about anyway. So if you go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, uh, there are direct links to what we're talking about. New pictures from Hubble um, of, uh, what, Mars and Saturn? Yes, these are pictures. I mean, they, when the Earth is uh, closest to them, every, uh, what we astronomers call it, opposition. So basically it's the time when the Earth ends up closest yep. on the same side as the Sun as those objects. Uh, then the Earth's slightly closer, so Hubble takes pictures. And it means the sunlight's shining pretty much straight down on the planet's surface, and they they just routinely do this. They've just posted their lovely views of Saturn. I mean, I might say Saturn at the moment, the rings are tilted up at an angle 
the, probably the, close to the highest angle of tilt that they get. So if you want to see Saturn through a telescope and see the rings at their finest, now's the time to get out there and have a look with a telescope. Uh, uh, because we go through periods around the orbit, you know, sort of it goes, what, 30 times, 30 years to go around the sun, and we sort of, so we get to points in its orbit where the rings are almost edge on. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, do become edge on and when they're nearly edge on they're just a thin little line you can't really see any detail on them and saturn looks a lot fainter but at the moment saturn because they're tilted up and it's reflecting more light saturn looks a lot brighter in the sky actually more surface area to there's more stuff with. reflecting yeah. back to you and uh, definitely worth a look um yeah so hubble's pictures are, are fantastic they show the hexagonal sort of storm at the pole of uh Saturn as well. That's nutty. Which Has is, a mathematician worked out why it's hexagonal yet? They don't know. Uh, it's all to do with, well, they don't know enough about the interior of Saturn to fully model right. it probably, but they use, I mean, the sort of thing they use are these uh, climate modelling programs that are used to model the Earth's atmosphere as well. So mm. they're, they're basically the same physics at the end, but they're not enough known about the interior, I think, to really fully understand why that pattern yeah. is there, and it's been there a long time now. Voyager saw it. Right. Right. Early, no, like 1970s, right. late 1970s. Okay, and that one isn't a conspiracy. No, there's no, no, There's a hexagon on Saturn. It's yeah, it's nutty. a persistent storm. Yeah. Uh, now, the dust storm on Mars, that's ongoing. Um, they've, how, how can you, f they've found the largest source of dust on Mars. It, well, Mars so is... So it's the surface. Come on, what well, is this? Well, Mars is a very dusty place. It's yeah. very fine, fine dust, and it's terrible stuff. It's a bit like on the moon where, um, you know, the dust on the moon is extremely fine. It just gets into everything, and it wrecks machinery, wrecks equipment, and so on. So so working in that sort of environment, and Mars has a lot of this stuff on it. And of course, the the, the um, landers that we've got on the surface of Mars, in particular Curiosity and stuff, have been measuring this dust and quantifying. But now, what uh, the astronomers have done who study Mars, they've sort of isolated these patches where they think most of the dust in, on the planet is coming from, and it's it's basically stuff that was thrown out by volcanoes about three billion years ago, oh. and it's it lies along the equator. Um, and uh, they call it the Medusae Fossae Formation. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. quite sure why, where those Latin terms came from, but anyway, they, that's what they're known as along the equator. And uh, they, they're probably hundreds of metres thick, these deposits, uh, and because of the chemistry of those deposits, they've found that it matches the dust scattered all around Mars. So, so when they have these storms uh, and the, that dust starts getting kicked up into the atmosphere, that, that's the main source of it. And then it gets deposited at other parts, so it gets spread around the planet. Right. But it's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's old sort of residuals of the volcanic dust. And they've got nice pictures as well of the, uh, of the erosion of those surfaces. Um, mm. I'm not quite sure what the best parallel. There's a big... Um, areas in the Gobi Desert, I think, on Earth, which mm -hmm. would be probably something similar, windblown dust uh, that uh, piles up very deep. On Earth, it's called Lurs, I think. Okay. It's the uh, term, geological term right. for these thick deposits of dust. Um, and, uh, it, you know, when it dries out and gets blown by strong winds, it just kicks up into the atmosphere, and because it's so fine, it hangs around for a long time, and that's what's really happening right now okay. on, on Mars, and the Mars has still got its ongoing dust storm going. Um, Slowly clearing, according to the latest pictures I've seen. 
of the Martian weather forecast at night. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? Well, the people uh, do study Martian weather and computer model it the same mm. as they do here. Yeah. Okay, uh, now NASA's got this planet hunting thing and it's accidentally caught um, a, a comet before starting to do anything. Yeah, well, this is one that we're very excited about because it's, it tests. This is the uh, terrestrial planet finder. It's basically looking for planets around other stars by looking for the little dip in brightness, but it's... Uh, it's kind of like a successor to the Kepler Space Telescope. And what Kepler did was looked at the same piece of sky for about three years, taking images of that same piece. TESS is different. It's going to be imaging the entire sky. It's got a much more capable, more modern camera than Kepler has. Uh, so it's going to be doing fantastic uh, science. It's just finished its commissioning stage. And during its testing, uh, they actually, you know, just as uh, well, uh, they caught this image of a, a relatively newly discovered comet uh, moving through the stars, and mm. uh, but the um, it's uh, so Tess is um, just gearing up to start its science. It's going to find an avalanche of new planets uh, orbiting stars uh, and planets as small as Earth, which are, are hard to find. And also, it'll be able to continue working longer, so it'll find planets further from these stars. So Kepler could only work for three or four years, so the chance of finding a uh, sort of Earth-sized planet going around a solar-type star, right. sun-like star, was just on the margin of detection. Tess is going to turn up a whole lot of stuff that uh, Kepler couldn't see. So it's going to be a very exciting project. Um, yeah, so it just finished the commissioning stage, testing, um, and uh, and also, I mean, it's just imaging the entire sky from space right. uh, with that precision is going to show us a lot of discoveries that nobody ever imagined. Yeah. Um, okay, Grant, thank you very, very much, and good seeing for this week. And it's still quite a show at night in the sky if you've got a clear time, isn't it? Oh, it's great. Yeah. I mean, Saturn, you know, Mars, Saturn and Mars, and Jupiter, um, and Venus is in, very bright in the western sky. Mm. Um, and, uh, in fact, if you wait until middle of October, I'll remind you near the time, Mercury will back in view again. Oh. So Mercury's gone round, it's tied up behind the sun at the moment, but it'll come back into the sky. So we'll again have the five naked-eye planets right. in the sky at the same time. Oh, really? Twice in one year. Nice. Cool. That doesn't happen often, I no, take it. No, 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 I don't know when that's actually happened, but mm. it probably has happened, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I think it was a Tuesday in the Triassic. <laughs> uh, thanks very much, Grant. All best. Cheers, Grant. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. More on a science tip coming up later in the program. Uh, we're going to be speaking with the writer of a new paper on climate change. It's a stark warning. We can... Are we getting... We, I think we can suffer from uh, climate change doom fatigue... I learned a thing or two speaking with him. Um, his name's Will Stephan. He knows his apples regarding climate change. And what we're talking about are tipping points to watch out for uh, and what this might mean for, let's say, the next 50 years. Yeah, modelling is not perfect and it's a very, very difficult thing to do. As a mathematician friend of mine pointed out, I was flatting with him. He was doing a PhD in numbery stuff wordy, booky, righty, downy, numbery stuff at university. And we were watching um, a documentary about John F. Kennedy. And it was the, we go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And he th threw 
a macaroon at the television. He says, it is easy. I'll tell you, it's got a discreet goal. I'll tell you what's hard. Try and predict the weather 10 days straight. I've never forgotten that. That's a wise and prescient thing to say. Anyway, have a listen uh, for just before Enviro News, not in the next hour, but the one after. Here comes the news and sport and weather.